night. Here we are again, praise God, on a blessed Lord's day. Thank God for this rain, amen? I didn't think it was ever going to rain again, and so I am very grateful that uh, the Lord has indeed sent rain. His blessing is still present. So if you could uh, turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 3. We're going to finish up the chapter today. We're going to be looking at verses 22 through 36. A couple of opening thoughts before we get into the text. So a few weeks ago, we talked about John the Baptist. I think if you've been a Christian for any length of time, or even not a Christian, you probably know who John the Baptist is. And he was a guy that was uh, sent by God before Jesus stepped on the scene to prepare people for the fact that the Messiah was at hand, that he was coming soon. And so this man exalted Christ like no other. He just would point to Jesus every chance that he got. That was the purpose of his ministry, and he executed, discharged those duties faithfully. Um, he exalted Christ. We talked about keeping Jesus in his rightful place, right? He's number one. He's at the top. He's the king. He's the Lord. He's the Son of God. John said of Jesus, he who comes after me ranks before me. So John was on the scene before Jesus was, but Jesus outranked John because he was preexistent. He was eternal. He was God in the flesh. And John the Baptist was determined, determined to exalt Christ, to magnify Christ, to bring him glory, to lift him on high. And the text that I'm referring to that we looked at a few weeks ago, uh, John did this in the presence of hostile religious leaders. Remember, John's ministry was so wildly popular that they had to send a religious delegation to go check him out and figure out what's going on here, who is this guy. And uh, he, he just kept making beelines right back to Jesus. They want to know, who are you? Well, let me tell you who I'm not. I'm not the Christ. Let me tell you about him. And so I just love that about John. Well, I believe that today is really a complementary text to that text. He is still determined to exalt Christ, still determined, and this time in the midst of pressure from his own peers, not the religious leaders, but his own disciples. We'll get more into that as we get into the text, but there's a little bit of competition brewing, a little bit of jealousy, a little bit of envy. Jesus is on the scene, if you could imagine that. And, uh, and people are a little upset about this. Everyone's going to Jesus now, and they come to John, and they try to stir him up. And his response is so glorious. And so even in the midst of religious hostile powers or his own peers and disciples, he remained steadfast in his determination to glorify Christ. He did not veer. He did not sway. He did not go off course. So regarding this idea of going off course, I heard a sermon years ago by a guy named Al Mohler, Dr. Al Mohler. He's the president of the Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And when he became the president of this institution, it had veered off track in the worst way, theologically. It, the, the school began with such strong roots and strong, clear convictions about the truth of the Word of God, but as time went on, those those convictions began to erode, and they began to teach all kinds of crazy stuff. And really, God used him to rescue this institution and bring it back to orthodoxy. So as he's telling this story, he kind of shares this illustration. And I'm just going to read his words because 
I certainly don't know much about uh, what this guy's talking about, but it makes sense to me. So Al Mohler quote, he said, In physics there is discussed the second law of thermodynamics, often spoken of shorthand as the law of entropy. Basically it says that energy moves towards dissipation rather than concentration. That is to say that a lightning bolt moves from definition to undefinition. A mighty river is eventually wearing down its riverbed so that the energy is dissipated as it widens and the waters become less powerful. Does that make sense? That which starts out with great energy usually weakens in time. A mighty river, as the riverbed erodes and widens, the river moves more slowly and with less force. Referring back to the illustration of lightning, he said, electricity let loose in the atmosphere absolutely dissipates. So energy, it tends towards dissipation rather than concentration. So the point that Moeller was making is that this same reality so often happens with theological institutions. They start out strong. They have well-defined theological beliefs and convictions. But over time, the bank erodes. Compromise happens, and those well-defined truths become blurred and even lost. And so that is certainly true of theological institutions. We've seen it in our country. So many different institutions that started out as a beacon of light where uh, preachers were trained to exalt Christ, and man, now their theological department is an embarrassment to the institution. They're ashamed of it. And so... Um, this is not only true of institutions like that, it's true of denominations. We see this kind of thing happen all the time and within the church at large. You may know the song, In Christ Alone, Christ Alone. It's a great song. And uh, there was a denomination that wanted to put together a new hymnal, and they wanted to include that song. Uh, but there was a line in there that said, On the cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. They didn't like that. They didn't like this idea of Jesus dying or suffering for wrath or to even concede that God is a God of wrath. So they wanted to remove that line and change it to, On the cross where Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. And so the Gettys, the ones who wrote that song, they, they reached out to them and asked them if they would make that concession and allow them to change the lyrics, and they would not. They took a stand for truth, for orthodoxy, and so they didn't include the, the song in their hymnal. And that's just the way that it is. And that's, that has happened uh, in a major way in our country. It continues to happen, the unraveling of truth, of clean, clear, cl uh, crisp lines of, of theology and orthodoxy. And a guy named Richard Niebuhr, he said this, when you do that, when you start to pick and pull and take things apart like that, this is what happens. You end up with a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment by means of a Christ without a cross. I mean, you've got nothing. You take it away what is left. And so that's what happens as things begin to veer, to go off track, off course. And, uh, you know... This is a real danger for all of us. It's not just theological institutions or denominations. This can happen for us. You know that, that uh, hymn, it says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. There's just something in us. We, we are prone to wander, if not for the keeping grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And so we may start very well. We start well. We start with great zeal and excitement, but different things can take us off course in many different ways. You know, we may start out really strong and excited about the things of God, but we allow sin to creep into our lives and to shipwreck us and to remove us from fellowship one with another. We begin to isolate. We turn away. This is a rather extreme example, but it was something that I was reminded of recently. You know, there was a world-famous worship ministry uh, just impacting millions and millions of people around the globe. And there was a, there was a guy who wrote a song where he was really making a big deal about God being the healer. And uh, he, when he sang this song, he was actually singing it from the stage with, uh, with uh, oxygen tubes in his nose. Well, what had happened was is that he was in, involved in some deep and dark sin, and it was actually having a physical effect on his body. And so in or, instead of confessing his sin or being honest about it, he said he had cancer. And so he was up on stage singing this song about the healing power of God with oxygen tubes in his nose because he was in such deep, heinous sin and hiding and lying about it. That kind of thing doesn't just happen in a day. And I, I don't feel any critical spirit towards that guy at all. That breaks my heart. You know, he didn't wake up one day and think, that's where I want to be with the Lord. That's where I want to be in ministry and in life. But that's what sin can do if left unchecked. If we get away from the Lord, get away from holiness and accountability and fellowship, we can wander in the same way. You know, false doctrine. I've seen people come in, they start strong, they're excited about the things of God, then they get a hold of some wacky teaching and it just takes them way out in the left field and they're gone. They're gone. People get distracted by the things of the world. They're more concerned about career or politics or comfort or security or relationships or, you know, name it, they may all be fine things, right, in and of themselves, but they allow those things to become the most important thing. They started out strong and now they're gone. Spiritual laziness and discouragement, I just didn't feel like getting up and reading my Bible. That, that happens. We all go through that. And on and on it goes. Discouragement ensues and we, uh, we just drift, Spiritual disillusionment. People get let down. We're people. We're going to let each other down. Did you know that? Have you been let down? Probably. Have you let somebody down? Without a doubt. It's just the way that it is. But sometimes people get let down and they say, you know what? Forget church. Forget Jesus. And I'm out of here. And that's, man, that's such a tragedy. But these are all the kinds of things that we battle day in and day out. You know, there's an ever-present danger of spiritual dissipation, where the riverbank erodes and it widens and we just lose excitement, we lose steam, we lose momentum. Sometimes the water stops altogether. Just recently I was standing out by what was a river and it was totally dried up and there was just a little, we were looking for puddles because my daughters love to throw rocks into puddles and uh, it was just nasty, stagnant little puddle of water. And that's, that's what it, it can become sometimes, you know. We want to be fresh, vitality, you know, running clean water, and, and we stagnate. And so, something that we have to watch out for. You know, consider the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. It was a, that was a church that started out with such strength and vitality. The Ephesian church, Paul spent three years there. 
They had such a pedigree of pastors that served there faithfully. And then in the end, Revelation chapter 2, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove the lampstand from its place, unless you repent. They had gotten away. They veered off track. They were doing many good things, but the most important thing they had gotten away from, and that was love for Jesus. And of course, we all know the, the church of the Laodiceans in Revelation chapter 3, these haunting words. Revelation 3.15, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now, I've heard people say, what does that mean, vomit? Is it like a literal thing? Like, what's up with that? Whatever it is, it's bad. It ain't good, <laughs> right? I don't want to experience that. I don't, want to be, I don't want any part of that. Now, what is going on here, I think this would have been very, very um, clear to the, to the readers of this at that time. A little interesting thing about Laodicea. This uh, one article I happened across, the guy says that uh, to the north of Laodicea, Hierapolis had healthy hot springs, and to the south, Colossae had cold springs that were clean and refreshing to drink from. But Laodicea had perpetual problems with its water supply, which was brought by aqueducts six miles from the south. By the time the water reached Laodicea, it had become lukewarm. It was tepid, unclean, and undrinkable, the kind of water that makes you sick, that you might spit out or vomit, as Jesus is said to do metaphorically, speaking with the entire Laodicean church. So they would have understood this. Their water source was polluted it was tainted the water came from a hot spring by time time it made its way by aqueduct it was just lukewarm and nasty you would go to drink it thinking that you were going to be refreshed and then instead you would spit it out when you realized that it was horrible water and so that's that's what had become of the laodiceans jesus said that's what you're like to me and so he says as many as i love i rebuke and chasten therefore be zealous and repent Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Isn't that glorious? Now, we often love to hear that verse or use that verse in evangelism. But Jesus is talking to Christians, supposed Christians. Somehow, Jesus is outside. Jesus said, Behold, I'm on the outside and I'm knocking. Will you allow me in? And so how, how did they get into that place? That's the, the temptation that is ever before us, to veer off track, and it comes in many different forms and temptations. So back to John the Baptist, that's what we see. He holds the line. He stays the course. When faced with great temptation to veer off track, he doesn't. You know, he doesn't succumb to the peer pressure to actually compete for prominence, because that's the idea. You know, you were wildly popular, John. You had the spotlight, and now you're fading, and someone else is getting it. What are you going to do about it? And his perspective is glorious. It truly was a perspective that brought much honor and exaltation to Christ. And that's what we're going to look at today. That's what we see happen in our text. It's a, it's a perspective that brings much honor and glory to our Savior, Jesus. That was a lengthy introduction. 
I'm going to move more quickly through the sermon. Allow me to pray. Father, we love your word. We love the truth that is revealed to us through the scriptures. Holy Spirit, would you please move in our hearts, open our eyes, speak to us because we desperately need a word from you. There are people here today who don't know you at all, and they need life. They need eternal life. Would you please open their hearts and their eyes to the truth of the gospel? There are people here that know you, God, but they're weary. They're struggling. They're hurting. They need, they need to be ministered to, Father. They need comfort. They need shepherding. They need healing. They need strength. Father, many different needs here today, God. And you have just the word for every single person in every single place. I know this to be the, the case, Father. So have your way, Lord. Be, be exalted here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so there's really four points in our text as we move through four main points. I managed to have a C and a P in every single one of them, and so I'm proud of that. That does not come easy. That takes real practice. I hope you know that. It takes an extensive vocabulary, of which I don't have, all right? And so, you know, let's roll with it. Point number one. Conflict over the popularity of Jesus. Conflict over the popularity of Jesus. You could say things get a little too close for comfort. Verse 22, after these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim, because there was much water there. And they came and they were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. So after these things, we are shifting scenes here. Last week, we saw Jesus interacting with Nicodemus, one of the ruler of the Jews. He was a ruler of the Jews and a teacher, and, uh, and Jesus interacted with him. We know the story. Now the, the story shifts, and Jesus moves on from that place, and he moves further into the Judean countryside. So remember, Judea is the southernmost part of Israel at this point. This is where it's very rocky terrain, and this is where the temple is, Jerusalem. So now I think they move much more northern, uh, northernmost part of Judea up towards Samaria, where there is some water. And so Jesus and his disciples are at this point baptizing somewhere near John the Baptist. Somewhere near John the Baptist. And then there's this little note here that John the Baptist had not yet been thrown into prison. So this is just kind of chronological specifics from uh, the author here, but we know eventually John was arrested by Herod because he spoke out against the immorality of Herod and his wife. And so that would eventually be the death of John the Baptist, but that hasn't happened yet. So the point here is that John's still on the scene, he's still baptizing, ministry is still going well, people are still coming to him. And then... Something happens. You know, the presence of Jesus somewhere nearby provokes some kind of frustration with his disciples, with John the Baptist's disciples. And so what comes about is a perceived ministry crisis, a perceived ministry crisis. Verse 25, then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. 
So evidently, there's some kind of an altercation here between the disciples of John the Baptist and some Jews, possibly Pharisees, and it's over purification, we're told, some kind of ceremonial cleansing. And so that was something that the Jews were very much into, the religious leaders, and they had all kinds of protocols that were to be followed. A big one was how they would wash hands. In fact, I think Jesus had gotten rebuked by uh, some of the Pharisees or his disciples because they didn't wash their hands before they ate. And so it was such, such a crazy process. You would have to have someone else assist you. So you'd wash your hands, hold your hands out like that, and they would pour water all over your hands. And then you had to wash your hands again and turn your arms like that because of the dirty water that came down. Now they're going to rinse your hands back off that way and let all the water fall off. And it was, it was really over the top. It was unnecessary. It was, uh, it was for show. It was kind of ridiculous. And so they, they just would go over the top with all things pertaining to religion and, and, and uh, you know, all the, the various rituals that, that accompanied that. And so perhaps there's some kind of argument here between what exactly is John the Baptist doing? What is the significance of this baptism versus the, the cleansing rituals of the Pharisees and the Jews? We really don't know. But what's more strange to me is how that conversation shifts from that to the popularity of Jesus. Because that's just kind of the way that it jumps. There's this this altercation between John's disciples and the Jews about purification, and then one of the disciples comes to John and says, hey, teacher, everybody's going over to here to Jesus now. And so everyone's going to Jesus instead of John, they say. And so John's response to their disillusionment is marvelous. And that's really what we're, what we're looking at here. It's, it's John's perspective. John's perspective about himself John's perspective, which is a good one, and I think it's something that we need to, to have towards ourselves. John's perspective about Jesus, and then he really gets into ultimately the Father's perspective about the Son. It's glorious. So this, that, that's kind of the setup. That sets the scene, what's going on here. Now John's getting ready to speak with just great words of wisdom. Point number two, what we're going to see here is John correcting wrong perspectives correcting wrong perspectives about John. So the first thing that John states, and this is, man, this is really powerful. John recognizes that God had given him exactly what God wanted him to have. John had what God wanted him to have. Verse 27, John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. Let that soak in. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. This is incredibly profound. This is freeing. This will set you free. And it can also be a very painful reality, too. Because we all have many wants and desires. And there's a sense in which recognizing that we have what God wants us to have when he wants us to have it removes, I think, the temptation to strive and to toil tirelessly just grasping at the wind but then there are those times when we know that the deepest desire of our heart it's it just our heart aches over something and it, we can't get it for whatever reason it's out of our reach but having the ability to say God I have what you want me to have and I will have what you want me to have 
It's a great place to be able to come to. John understood that whatever he had or did not have, that was determined by God. If God wants me to have a wildly popular ministry, praise His glorious name. If God does not want me to have a wildly popular ministry, praise His holy name. Right? John had the ability to say that. He knew that. John could not take credit for what he had. When you know that all that you have is a gift from God, to who goes the glory? To God goes the glory. We can't take credit for any of it. I love that. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? To God belongs the glory. We must boast in Him. Every good thing that we have, it's a gift. It comes down from heaven from the Father of lights. And it is because of His kindness and His grace, and we can only brag in Him. Because a man, a woman can receive nothing unless it's given to him, him or her from heaven. You know, John couldn't demand what he didn't have. It's God's prerogative. God gives good gifts to His children. And God gives good gifts in His good timing. And we know this. We've all experienced the goodness and the kindness of God, the generosity of God. But God gives what He wants to give when He wants to give it, and we can't demand anything from God, right? We cannot demand it. We must be content with what we have. This is probably the most challenging thing. But recognizing that a man can receive nothing unless it is given to him from heaven should bring us to a place of contentment. Praise you, God. I'm happy with what you've given me. I'm not going to complain against my God. I am who I am right now because God has made me that. I have what I have right now because God has given me that. To Him belongs the glory. Amen? Now that's the idea of what Paul said in Philippians chapter 4. Paul's on some kind of a house arrest situation in Rome. And the church of Philippi had sent him a care package, a love gift, if you will, to care for his necessities while he was there in, in house arrest in Rome. And he sends them a letter expressing his gratitude. And he says in verse 11, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am in to be content. To be content. He says, I know how to be abased, that is, how to have nothing. I know how to abound, to have plenty. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the context of that verse. Paul could be okay with wherever he was in life, whatever his lot was, he could be content because the power of Christ strengthened him to that end. Now, that's a great verse, and it can be used in many different ways, and it is, you know, I can win a basketball game because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? You hear it used in so many different ways and applications, but this is deep, man. Any lot in life, wherever you are, whatever you have, to recognize that it is a gift from God's hand, whether large or small, I can be content. I can be satisfied with what I have, right? That was John's perspective. That was John's perspective. I have what God wants me to have. Praise Him. Praise Him. I don't need anything more than what God has given me. I'm satisfied. I'm content. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not... What? I shall not want. The good shepherd. He takes care of His sheep, doesn't He? 
Doesn't he? Isn't he faithful? Hasn't he always been faithful? Won't he always remain faithful? Yes, he will. Amen. John knew that. John knew that. So the next thing, the next kind of perspective John comes with, John never claimed to be more than he was. John had what God wanted him to have, and John never thought of himself as more than he actually was in the first place. Verse 28, he says, You yourself bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He says, look, guys, you know this is nothing new. I've been telling you all along I'm not the one. I'm not the man. I'm not the Christ. I have simply been sent ahead of him to prepare the people for the fact that he is coming, and then he has to be the preeminent one. The light must shine upon him. John's entire ministry existed to point to another. Now, isn't that something? I mean, isn't that what ministry is supposed to be? Any ministry that doesn't point to Jesus is no ministry at all. And so John said, look, it was never about me. This ministry has existed from day one to exalt Christ and to point people to him, and it will continue to do so. I will continue to do that. Any ministry should do that. But you know, people can quickly lose sight of the fact that they're not the main attraction. People can quickly lose sight of that. You know, we live in a day and age with um, this phenomenon of the celebrity pastor. Celebrity pastors. And I mean, there's just so many of these guys out here. They are incredibly gifted. Gifted men. Many of them very godly men. And the church explodes Thousands and thousands and then multiple campuses. You know what? Humans, I don't think, are made to have that kind of success. It does something to people. It's, a, it's far and few between is, is someone who can handle that kind of success and not succumb to it and fall. You know, the, you think about the Israelites. They never did well with success. They never did well with success. When things were hard, when they were struggling, they were right at the feet of God crying out. But when they started to prosper, what happened? They would start worshiping other gods. And we see this kind of thing happen. There was a, a pastor years ago, very I think 15,000 member church, and he fell. I remember I went to a, a pastor's conference in, in Florida he was preaching at, and it was an incredible sermon. And he was talking about maintaining sexual purity and temptations that, that had come his way, and he was making a big joke out of it, and everybody was laughing, but come to find out he was having an affair as he preached that sermon. And uh, he got found out, and he got humbled. And so another pastor came to him, was telling this story about how he was trying to you know, counsel him, and the guy said, I guess this is paraphrase. I can't remember exactly how he said it, but he said, I guess I let my celebrity get to me. And the, the pastor said to him, who told you you were a celebrity? You know, where, did that, where does that come from? And so it's a real thing. People start thinking they're the main attraction. Well, God doesn't share his glory with anybody. God doesn't share his glory. And so that's a dangerous place to be. And you know, it's a constant danger for Christians in general. It's not just mega pastors. We are all susceptible to this. It's all about Jesus, but how often do we make it all about us, you know? We've got to watch out for that. You know what we are? We are stewards and we are servants. That is a tremendous honor and it's one that we do not deserve. 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says, Let a man consider us as servants of Christ 
and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. There it is. We are stewards. We've been entrusted with something beautiful, something glorious. It is not ours. The gospel, the mystery of God. And we are servants. This word servant, it's only used here in the New Testament in the Greek. Typically, the word doulos is the word that is used for servant. Here, it's, it's the word from which we get under rower. It's huperetes. And that would be a galley slave. People that are at the bottom of a ship who are pulling the oar. And I'm sure we've seen movies where someone's like beating on a drum, and as they beat faster, people start pulling the, the oar faster. Man, it doesn't get any lower than that. I mean, you, it does not get any lower. That was a death sentence. That's what that was. If somebody was at the bottom of a galley ship, they had been sentenced to death. And so they are pulling that oar to the beat of someone else's drum. And so, you know, Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants. I call you friend. Amen? Amen. But we recognize that it's an honor to be a servant of the Most High God. And we are, we are under rowers. We are galley slaves. We're not the main thing. I remember as I was coming up in the ministry in, in Greenville, Tennessee, I was, uh, you know, I had a lot of immaturities there, and, uh, you know, my pastor came to me and was like, we're going to raise you up in like six months, and I was shocked, and I was excited, and within six months, he recognized it ain't happening in six months, and so it turned into just a gradual on and on and on, and there was this new guy that came in, and he was the man, and... Um, I love that brother to this day. And anyways, it was like they were celebrating something for the pastor that day. And uh, they asked him to get up and, and, and share a word. So he came to me and was like, hey, you know, I'm sorry. I, I really feel like you should be the one to get up there. You, you were here before me. And I just remember thinking and saying, brother, I'm an under rower. I'm an under rower, nothing more. Get up there and, and bless the pastor, you know. And that, that's the perspective that we have to have sometimes in life. I'm not the main attraction. I'm not the Christ. I'm a galley slave. I'm an under rower. Amen. We are servants of the Most High God. We can get that twisted. We can get that twisted. Sometimes we are sitting on the throne of our hearts instead of Christ. And so not so with John the Baptist. He said, I have what God wants me to have and I was never the one in the first place. It's always been about Jesus, and it's still about Jesus. You know, I thank God that he, you know, gave me that perspective. I'm not, you know, feel weird even telling that story about myself. But I, that was just a moment. I praise God that he, by the grace of God, gave me that perspective. And I just pray that I could have that perspective more continually. Amen? That we could all live in that place where we recognize that. Well, that brings us to the, the third point. So now, John the Baptist celebrates the prominence of Jesus. He celebrates the prominence of Jesus. He had to correct some wrong perspectives about himself, and now he had to point to Jesus. And Jesus was cause for celebration. John rightly understood that Jesus had to be the prominent one. Jesus had to be the one of most importance. Verse 29, He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. 
Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. Sorry, this window over here is kind of broken, so if you hear it, the wind shutting it, that's all it is. All right. So John gives this interesting little parable here. And John says, look, Jesus is the bridegroom, and I'm the friend. All right, so Jesus is the bridegroom in this wedding, and those who are coming to Jesus are his bride. Hence the term, the bride of Christ, the church, right? And John says, I'm simply the friend. It's kind of like the best man, if you will, the best man. And he is rejoicing that the bridegroom is the prominent one. Now, we kind of have a backwards, uh, backwards idea of, of wedding, wedding customs now compared to them. But as strange as this may sound, back in these days, the, the groom was kind of like the center of it all. And so... When he says that, you know, I'm just the friend of the bridegroom, what he's saying is really the bridegroom, Jesus is the center of everything, and I'm just here to assist him. David Guzik says, John explained to his followers that he was like the best man at a wedding. He isn't the bridegroom. He isn't to be the focus of attention, but to supervise the bringing of two people together. In the Jewish wedding customs of that day, the friend of the bridegroom arranged many of the details of the wedding and brought the bride to the groom. Nevertheless, the friend of the bridegroom was never the focus of attention. So you see where John is going with this? Jesus is the main one. He's the, he's the man, and I'm just here to serve him, to come alongside and assist him in the completion of all that must happen here. And he says, as that happens, my joy is fulfilled. This is, this is another perspective that I appreciate about John he is rejoicing in the fact that his ministry is totally dissipating. His ministry is dissipating. People are no longer coming to him. They're now coming to Jesus. And he said, my joy is complete. He could rejoice in the fact that Jesus was being glorified even at his own detriment, if you will, even at his own loss. That's amazing to me. That's quite the perspective. The Apostle Paul kind of has that same idea in Philippians. He's, he's in house arrest there, as I've already said. And he said, you know, the fact that I'm here, it's actually giving people greater confidence to preach Christ. He said, but there are actually, there are people out there that for whatever reason are preaching Christ out of envy and strife, hoping to bring further affliction to Paul. I don't understand how that, how, how that computes that way, but that was Paul's understanding of what was happening. And then he says this, I love this. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. So there were guys out there in ministry that had a problem with Paul, and they're out there preaching somehow to try to create problems with Paul. They had envy, there was strife, and Paul said, I don't care about that. Christ is being preached. Christ is being preached. That's all that matters. Man, what? That's a... That's, that's a that's kind of an exalted perspective. You know, that's, that's rising above all the nonsense and really having our eyes set on what matters most, and that is Jesus. Amen? Amen? So John knew. John knew, one, that Jesus had to be the prominent one, and two, John knew that he must, Jesus must increase in prominence. Jesus must increase in prominence. Which brings us to verse 30. I love these words. John said, He must increase, but I must decrease. 
He must increase, but I must decrease. Now this ought to be the cry of every Christian's heart. May Christ be glorified. May Christ be magnified. May Christ be everything and I be nothing. Amen? I often think of this when I consider what it means to be a witness. May, may people see Christ in me. May people see the love of Christ in me. May I speak forth the truth and the words of Christ. May I decrease in this situation and may he increase. May I be an ambassador of Jesus. Right? I think this is the heart of taking up one's cross. When the Bible says that we must die to ourselves and take up our cross, that is to say that Rob Rainey's got to go. All right? All my dreams, my hopes, my goals, my ambitions, all of that has to die on the cross. It's Jesus' dreams, his goals, his hopes, his ambitions, his glory, his will for my life. Amen? That is what it means to take up one's cross. I must die that he may reign. I must be dethroned so that he may be enthroned. I must decrease, he must increase. Jesus must come into full view here, and John must altogether disappear. I mean, think about the ministry of John the Baptist. He goes from wildly popular to obscurity to killed in prison. I think that a lot of guys, they, you know, in ministry, they have such a desire to see a radical move of God and to see an explosive thing happen in their ministry, and they never see that. And that may be a challenging thing, but <clears throat> how much more challenging would it be to have that radical, explosive ministry and then to see it just for not, nothing that John did? It wasn't sin on his part. It wasn't anything other than that was God's plan. That was God's will for John. In fact, that was God's awesome plan for John's life. We talk about that, right? God loves you and he has an awesome plan for you. He does have an awesome plan for every one of us because it's his plan. That's what makes it awesome. But our idea of awesome and his idea of awesome might not always be the same thing. That was God's awesome plan for John the Baptist. Wildly popular, obscurity, death in a dungeon. But you know what? That was an awesome plan. You know why? Because he glorified Christ. He exalted Christ like no other. And then when he was done, when his task was fulfilled, God took him home. He exalted Christ while he was here, and then God called him home. That's an awesome plan right there. That's an awesome existence. That is significance. That is significance. He had a significant life and ministry. He served faithfully, served well. Now, odds are none of us here are in direct competition with Jesus. That's a strange thing, isn't it? Everybody's going to Jesus, John. What are you going to do about this, man? Step it up. We need fog machines. We need strobe lights. We need louder music. Come on, right? But no. No. He's like, that's ridiculous. I'm not here to compete with Jesus. That's just an insane thing to even think. You know, and odds are that's not where any of us are, right? I mean, it could be. There could be people that are making themselves the center of attention rather than Jesus. I think that's something that we all have to watch out for. Uh, but perhaps, you know, it's as simple as there's something in our lives that needs to decrease so he can increase. 
What in our lives needs to decrease so that Jesus can increase? That's a, that's a searching and convicting question, even for me, as I think about that. Because I can think of some things, you know, some things in my life that need to decrease so that Jesus can increase. And that can only happen by the grace of God and the Spirit and the power of God. And so I'm not trying to lay a burden on you guys and be like, you need to do more and step it up more. But it's the, this is the Father's will. It must happen. John said so. Jesus must increase, and Jesus can increase in our lives. That's God's desire for us. Don't you believe that God will give us the grace to do it? That's our hope. We can celebrate and rest in the fact that God is going to do it, like it or not. If you're for it or against it, it's going to happen. I praise God for that. I, you know, take this life and let it be a pleasing offering. You know, anything, any, any, anything that hinders us, Hebrews chapter uh, 12, it says to, to, you know, cast off those weights. If you are running in a race, you're not going to wear a trench coat, are you? That would be dumb. And so we, we do run in life like that. We have to cast off those things that weight us down. There are things in our lives that are causing Jesus to not shine as brightly as he could. Or should. And so we need to pray, God, show us, search us, show us. Give us the strength and the grace to put those things down so that Jesus may increase. Amen? And that brings us to our fourth point, confirming the preeminence of Jesus. This is the Father's recognition and exaltation of the Son. Jesus is the one. He is the greatest. He is to be exalted to the highest place. Why? Because the Heavenly Father says so. And what we see here in verses 31 through 36 are really four reasons why we ought to glorify the Son. And so, John, we see the scene that is set. This potential ministry crisis is a brewing. Then John steps to that, speaks to it, and he sets the record straight. I have what God wants me to have. And I am not the Christ. I'm not the one. And then he celebrates the prominence of Jesus. Jesus is the main thing. He's the bridegroom. He must increase. I must decrease. And then he goes on now to confirm the preeminence of Jesus. Because the Father has recognized and exalted the Son. You with me? So here are four reasons why we should exalt the Son. First, the Son of God is the heavenly witness from the Father. Verse 31, he who comes from above is above all, and he who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all, and what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. So as I mentioned before, John the Baptist, that's what he's known for, baptizing, right? But more than baptizing, he was a witness. That's really what John was. He testified to the truth of Christ. And though he was a mighty witness, there was a witness that was greater than he. And that is the witness of the Son of God. Because John was an earthly witness. He was born of the earth, right? But Jesus came from above. And Jesus came to testify of that which only he had seen and heard. Nobody else could testify of the truth like Jesus Christ. John 1.18 Jesus, uh, excuse me, John 1.18, it says, No one has ever seen God, the only 
Son, the one and only Son, the one who is at the Father's side, He has revealed Him. See, Jesus is the ultimate witness to the truth, to the Father. He is God's witness. He is from above. And He testifies of that which He has seen and heard. That is why we need to hear Him. And that why God said, this is my beloved Son, hear Him. The Son of God is the spokesman for the Father. Verse 33, He who has received His testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. So the one who receives the truth of Jesus, we're told, that is to open their heart and their arms to fully embrace the truth, that person has certified that God is true. That is to attest to the truthfulness of God. The person that receives the truth of Jesus recognizes that God is true. And it says, the Father has poured out His Spirit on the Son without limit. There is no one like Jesus. God has poured out His Spirit upon His Son in a very unique way, the unique Son of God. He operated in the power of the Spirit in ways that we will never know here on this earth. He was truly God, truly man, functioning in the fullness and the power of God's Spirit. That is God's endorsement on His Son. The day He was baptized, remember what happened? The Spirit... It descended, it fell upon him like a dove, and then he went forward in the power of the Spirit. That was God's endorsement of his Son. What did he say? This is my Son, who I love, my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Well, the Son has spoken the very words of the Father as the heavenly witness. John seven forty six. there were these officers who had been sent to apprehend Jesus by the Pharisees, and when they came back... They came back without Jesus. They were stunned by his words. They said, no man has ever spoken like this man. Why is that? Because he spoke the words of God, the words of the Father. John 6, 68, when everybody was going to turn away from Jesus, and Jesus turned to his disciples and said, are you going to go too? Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. John chapter 12, verse 49 says, I have not spoken of my own authority. Jesus says, I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. The Son speaks the very truth, the very words of the Father. And the Father has loved the Son and given him the authority to go forth and speak words of eternal life. Amen? The Son of God is loved and authorized by the Father. Verse 35. It says that the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. You know, there is a love from the Father to the Son beyond our ability to comprehend. Human minds cannot fathom such a love. God loves His Son and is well pleased with His Son. And as such, God was well pleased to give all authority to his son. John 17, verse 1, Jesus spoke these words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son also may glorify you. You have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ, 
whom you have sent. That is eternal life. Those are the words of the Father. That is the message of the gospel. As the, God, as the Father has loved the Son, the Son has loved us. God has given the Son authority to give us everlasting life. And what is life but to know the Father and to know His Son? And that leads us to the last, the last little point here of God's recognizing and exalting His Son. The Son of God is the salvation of the Father. The Son of God is the very salvation of the Father. Verse 36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Hebrews chapter 2 says that Jesus has been made the captain of our salvation. I love that. He is the captain of our salvation. You know, the Bible says that outside of Christ, we are all underneath the wrath of a just and holy God. That is a terrifying thing. That's a terrifying place to be. To know that we are separated from a holy God because we have transgressed his holy law. And that we have to give an account one day for our wrongdoing here in this life. But we are told that Jesus gives life. That if we believe on Jesus Christ, that we are rescued from the wrath of God. The wrath of God is satisfied. Amen? On the cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. That is glorious news. We need to hear that. We need to know that. The wrath of God is satisfied, and we have been rescued from death into life. We've been brought from darkness into light. That's the main reason to exalt Christ, and that is by God's design. This is all God's doing. God was going to give His Son a people that would worship Him forever as redeemed as forgiven, as saved, as ransomed. Because we were all outside of God's blessing. We were all enemies. We were all enemies, dead in our trespass and sin. But such is the love of God. God so loved the world. God demonstrated His love that in that while we were enemies, He sent His Son Jesus to live the life that none of us could ever live. He died the death that every single one of us deserved. Jesus drank the wrath of God. He drank that cup we were intended to drink for all of eternity. Jesus drank that cup. The wrath of God was poured out on His Son in our stead. And Jesus said, it is finished. The price has been paid in full. And then He rose again from the grave. And now the gift of life is for all of those who would believe in Jesus Christ as the one who died in their place and rose again from the grave. And that is life, and life everlasting. And all of this for the exaltation and the glory of the Son. If you don't know Christ, you can know Him. If you come in here today, and you are in your sin, and you feel the weight of that, you know that you have to give an account to God. Well, I want you to know there's good news for you. You're here because God brought you here. This is God's doing. You came here today, and you are hearing the love of the Father. You are hearing the love of the Son. You are hearing the message of the cross, the gospel. Believe. Call upon the name of Jesus. Worship Him. Turn to the loving hand of the Father. No longer an enemy, but a child. You know, this is what's going on around the throne. Revelation 5 says, you were slain. The people are countless, innumerable multitudes are singing to Jesus. And it says, you were slain. 
and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Blessing and honor and glory and power be to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Amen. I'm going to close with a story. You know, Jesus is worthy of it all. He is worthy of our highest praise. He is to be exalted. He is the one. Amen. He is the thing above every other thing. There was a missionary movement, the Moravian missionaries, and uh, there were a couple of men, young aspiring missionaries, and they had heard of this island that was full of slaves, thousands of slaves working on this island, and the, the owner of the slaves in this island hated God, and he said, no one will ever get on this island to preach the gospel to these people. These Moravian missionaries, they found out about that. You know what they did? They sold themselves into slavery. They sold themselves into slavery to get onto that island, and they used the money that they got just to fund the trip. And as they are sailing away and their family is standing on the shore weeping, just not understanding why they would do such a thing, the last thing that was cried out from the boat was, Worthy is the Lamb to receive the reward of His suffering. Worthy is the Lamb to receive the reward of His suffering. He is worthy. He is the preeminent one. He is the exalted one. He is the one who suffered under the wrath of God and rose again from the grave and brings life to an untold innumerable multitude. Amen? And he is worthy. You know what the reward of his suffering is? It's you. The reward of his suffering is his redeemed people, the people that he has saved and brought from darkness and into light. He's worthy of his reward. He's worthy. Can we give him the, the reward that he deserves? Can we give him glory? Can we exalt his holy name? Can we praise him? He deserves it, amen? Let's pray. We give you glory, Jesus. You are high and lifted up. High and lifted up. There is none like you. You alone save. You alone are Savior and there is no other. You're worthy of so much more than we could ever give you. But thank you, Lord, that what we give you, it's pleasing. It brings you joy. It brings you honor. So have our lives. May you increase. May we decrease. Please stir our hearts up afresh. Rekindle the fire that once existed in us. Bring us back to our first love. Restore again in us the joy of our salvation. May the brightness of your glory overwhelm our hearts. We praise you. For anybody in this room today who has not trusted Christ, today is the day. May they call upon your name and live. May they trust you, Lord. Open their hearts. Grant them repentance. Call their name. Good shepherd, you said your sheep know you. They hear your voice and they come. Call their name, Jesus. I pray for everybody in here this week. God, bless them, strengthen them, encourage them, fill them. Use them for your glory. Give them the grace that they need to make it another day, another week. May we bring glory to you because you are worthy of it all. In Jesus' name, amen.
Amen.